thanks for listening again. This is the Filmed in Canada podcast. I'm William Lee. And joining me again is Chris Avery. Thanks for having me, William. Thanks for coming back. Pardon the uh, intermittent noise in the background. That rumbling is uh, the construction for our Filmed in Canada complex, opening soon. <laughs> Where's Alexander this week? I, th- I think he said he wanted to um, have some time to prepare for his piano recital. Uh, so he's gone into seclusion, and um, he's preparing for this uh, big concert. Um, did you get your invite to it already? I did not get my oh, okay. invite. I think that's just an oversight, but uh, we'll probably be attending. I think it's in it's in either uh, a cathedral or or like a dugout um, sort of underground uh, recording studio. So I'm looking forward to attending it. I hope you are too. As am I. I'm yeah. very impressed. I had no I had no idea that Alexander was a is he a jazz pianist or a classical pianist? I think he's a classical pianist or but I think wow. he does uh, I think it's a hybrid of uh, of classical and new age. And uh, I think he even has a, a like a different technique for piano too. So Really? Yeah, it might include one or both of his feet. But uh, oh. it's it's going to be something. <laughs> Speaking of music. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so that's why, Chris, I invited you on the show today, because it's a, it's a music-themed show. Is that what you call it? <laughs> well, uh, it so happens that the movie we're talking about today is probably better known for its music. So the, uh, the composer, John Corig- Corigliano. Corigliano. I will say you are pronouncing that correctly, okay. though I don't anyway, know. I wanted to. I wanted to say that. Um, yeah, music. The music um, is a big feature in today's movie. Why? Um, it's an Academy Award-winning score, William. Did you know that? Yes. Yes. Uh, John Corigliano mm-hmm. took home the Oscar that year for uh, the best music for the Red Violin, which we'll talk about today. Okay. Um, uh, also, uh, he was nominated at the Grammys for Best Instrumental Composition Written for Motion Picture. Wow. So this is a, um, musically, this is a well-regarded movie. Critically, this movie also has its admirers. Um, I didn't look them up uh, prior to coming here, but I mean, it's, it's, it's got a seven or, or higher on IMDb. Yeah. And I have a question for you. Roger Ebert, called the movie heedlessly ambitious so not needlessly heedlessly and i'm not sure what ebert would have meant by that like if you're heedless it's you're not prudent and you're not cautious so what does it mean to be heedlessly ambitious could it mean could could ebert have been meaning that this one is He's just taking chances, and it's just ambitious. Um, that that's reckless. There, there's movies that do that, and uh, there's movies that I admire for that. Sure. Um, the ones that just try to be different. Yeah. And uh, uh, whether they succeed or fail, you have to admire that they they tried something. I, however, have a different opinion about this movie. <gasps> Do you? Yeah. I'm listening. Okay, well, we'll we're going to get into it <laughs> for sure. Um, the Red Violin mm-hmm. from 1998, directed by Francois Girard, 
and uh, written by Don McKellar. Uh, Don McKellar, we talked about his movie uh, last night, previously, uh, or sorry, um, before on this podcast. Um, he's an actor, writer, director. Uh, Francois Girard, I think this is his the first movie of his that we're talking about, but he's he's also known for music uh, music uh, influenced movies. Uh, Thirty two short films with Glenn Gould, for example. Right. And um, something else doesn't come to mind, but I think I think there's other music themed things that he's in, that he works with. Yeah, I only, I only know the thirty two short films. Okay, so where to begin? This is a movie. This is the first of a hundred sighs you're going to hear from me okay. about this movie. Yeah, I sighed a lot. All right. I guess we should just uh, warn listeners: <laughs> if this is one of your favorite movies, um, this might not be one of your favorite podcast episodes. So, <laughs> I'm not a fan of this movie. Nor am I. And but I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, which which we'll get into, mm-hmm. um, but and, and I and I hate to be I hate to be offering my reaction to a movie, or sorry my, my opinion of a movie in reaction to other people's opinions, but this is a movie that I I kind of feel like um, people were duped, and or and or I am just like totally. Um, what, what do you say when they, you just like I totally missed the boat on this one because something something just like nothing hits for me on this movie and and I'm just I'm just uh, I've always been a little bit surprised that it got the critical reception that it did and I know that you don't want to make it a relative thing but if if you saw that a lot of the reviews were seven and a half out of ten or seven out of ten and I know we're not at your rating system yet but would you have given it like a strong three like how how far off are you feeling about the movie than the people that you saw that had reviewed it? Oh, so you want to do it out of ten? Just for example. Okay, <laughs> I think I would have been around like a five or a six. Right. So okay. like I don't I don't despise it. Right. I just think it's not so good. Yeah, and I wonder if like so many things in Canadian cinema and Canadian television and Canadian novels, it's always measured against our, you know, more talented, athletic older brother, which is United States. Like, oh, it's good for a Canadian movie. Like, it actually went to different locations. It had an international cast. People spoke other languages besides French. Maybe we were just so excited about it being almost like an American movie or a European movie that we just got overly enthusiastic about the rating system when the movie might not merit such a high score. What you said I, reflects a little bit of my feelings for, okay. for it too. I think it gets a pass um, for uh, for what it could be right. rather than like what it actually is. Yeah. 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 And for me, it's, it's the kind of movie that is so... Uh, I almost feel like it's, it's manufactured to be a movie that people regard in this way. It's, it's like a self-important kind of a... Um, well, if it was, if it was um, sep- between September and December, you would see movies that you say, like, that's Oscar bait. Right, right. This feels like award, the Canadian version of awards bait. Agreed. And, and, and that's why I guess I'm a little bit... Uh, I give it a, a harder time because I think, I think it's kind of cynical how it's put together. Um, I don't think that is uh, 
a genuine work in in, in that uh, it is it has something to say. It has an artist's vision. I think it it feels to me like it's constructed to get a certain reaction from critics. So you almost feel uh, manipulated as a viewer. Um, I don't personally because I because I kind of because you didn't love it. I didn't love it. I don't. Okay. I just feel kind of like you know it's it's not working for me. Right. Um, but I you know I. I I, I just might be off point on it, but I don't think so. And, and I know that it won the Academy Award for uh, the music, but I just think of more iconic music scores that I think are just more effective, and whether that's The Untouchables or Peter Gabriel's Last Temptation of Christ or Ennio Morricone's Well Anything, um, The Mission, The those are soundtracks that are just so memorable. This soundtrack, if you played me a 30-second clip, I would never be able to identify it as coming from this movie. Actually, I watched this today. I, finished, I watched a bit of it again this, this morning. So I'm, I'm looking at the clock and figuring it was about 10 hours ago. Right. All right. I watched a bit of this 10 hours ago, uh-huh. and I had it in my mind that I would uh, kind of mock the score by, by humming some of it to you. Yeah. I can't remember it right now. Wow. So, and, and, it, and, it's, and uh, the, main, the main piece of the music that they play on the violin, um, it is repeated so much in the movie. Everybody, every character who picks up the violin magically plays like that same... Um, melody or there's almost something that as the movie progresses it has a shrillness to it that almost put me on edge it's unlike um you know the cello music that you'll hear in a in a more classical score that sounds very soothing and uplifting this got to me just shriller and i was doing a little molar grinding by the end i just did not want to hear that violin again (laughs) yeah and I, I don't think I have anything against hearing the violin. No, but, but in I didn't this think movie, I did. In this movie, because it's it's usually a solo violin mm-hmm. and playing um, playing that strain, like yeah, I just it got tiresome for me too. But it made an impression on uh, on people who uh, who give out those kinds of awards. Right. Yeah. Um, just uh, just briefly, I wanted to also mention the other awards that it got recognized for. Um, the 1999 Genie Awards. This is uh, the Canadian um, similar, similar to the Oscars for, but right. in Canada, right? I think it's like right. the movie awards. That's right. Which has been, I think, um, the movie and TV awards have been kind of um, joined into one Is that thing. a lion now? No. No. The Leo? I think that's the like Leo, the Vancouver Awards. Okay. No, I think the, the Canadian Screen Awards is like the... Oh, yes. Okay. The, the big amalgamated one. But anyway, back when it was the Genie Awards. Um, so this one, Best Picture. It won Best Achievement in Direction, Best Screenplay, <laughs> Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Costume, uh, Best Score again, uh, Best Overall Sound. So um, highly recognized, highly I awarded. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned the Grammy nomination. Oh, then there's the Jusra Awards. So I think Quebec had its own movie awards. Okay. Okay, so in Quebec, so in Quebec, it won Meilleur Film, Best Film. <laughs> C'est bon. Uh, best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Screenplay, Best Sound, what? Best Editing, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Score. The only ones that didn't win were Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. Wow. But they were nominated. 
Interesting. Um, that's a lot of awards. It is a lot that's of awards. That's a lot of awards. Yeah. So there are people who will admire this, will defend it. Um, they're not on this podcast today, but uh, you know, if you're, if listeners, you like this movie, I, I welcome your feedback on it. Uh, so leave comments or send us emails or uh, or do your own podcast dedicated to the Red Violin. <laughs> um, no, I, I, and I mean that sincerely. Like I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'm I'm always curious to hear like other uh, other reactions to to something, especially when since Chris and I um, are are sort of. Um, Leaning to uh, to the opposite camp on, on this on this one. I don't think I realized the um, the tally of awards that it got. That is um, yeah. surprising. Now, who's in this movie? Um, Don McKellar. Many people cameo. that you don't know. Many people, many many people you don't know. <laughs> but uh, but uh, there's a good handful of people you do know. Yes. Yeah. Um, Don McKellar shows up. Yes. Um, Samuel Jackson, who does not say motherfucker once. In this movie. Very disappointing. I know. <laughs> if he had said motherfucker to the hotel concierge, shit would have gotten done. He, that scene would have warranted it. Yeah. Where he goes well, off on the on hotel clerk. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Greta Sachi, the whore lover muse. Um, <laughs> Confior. Yes. One of those. Oh, Sandra Oh, which yes. I think I had totally forgotten that she was in this movie. Uh, though I saw this movie in 98 when it came out. Uh, and of course, I had seen her in Double Happiness, but I just, I guess her part was so small and it comes a little later. I had no recollection that she was in the movie. Anyone else that you know? Some Italians? No, I don't. didn't recognize any of the Italian, <laughs> the Italian cast. I recognized the English chap. Um, oh, I wrote his, his name. His name's somewhere. Jason Fleming. Yes. But I actually thought for a second it was Paul Bettany. So I, I don't know if I know Jason Fleming from anything. Oh. He's... Do you know him from somewhere? No. Okay. Do you look kind of familiar? Had, yeah, he had a face that I thought yeah. I'd seen him around. He's probably in a lot yeah. of those British procedurals. It seems like there's 20 BBC actors that are in every show you've ever seen. The uh, the woman who was sort of the head of the auction house? Right. Yeah. I, for a long time, I thought I thought that was uh, Genevieve Bougeot, but I did wasn't. too. Yeah. 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 No, we don't know her. <laughs> mm, okay. Uh, I have to talk about budget in this movie. You looked up budget on this one? Oh, I had to. Oh, because it looks effing expensive. And I don't know why I censored myself. I should not, right? <laughs> we just did motherfucker. Okay. I think I think you can go. Okay. It was, it was ex- <laughs> this thing looks like expensive like a motherfucker. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> but what did you find out? Oh, uh, I'm just, I'm so, I don't know what to say about this. It's $15 million. In 1997 dollars, it was the most expensive Canadian movie ever produced until a movie that you have talked about on your podcast, Passchendaele. Passchendaele Ooh. cost $20 million, Ooh. but it got a $5 million grant from the Alberta government. So, But $15 million. I'm going to say that's 15 times more of a budget than every Canadian movie that you've talked about on this podcast. I could be wrong. I'm not a mathematician, but I'm just going to throw that out there. In Canadian dollars, 15 million is a lot. In yeah. 1997. And uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, foreign locations. And I wonder, like the whole co-production, yeah. how, how that. I don't know how the whole co-production thing works right. for which country's favor, but right. But do they? It, it looks like they can go to the 
equivalent of universal backlot in Italy or in China and just say, like, give us the standard uh, Renaissance street or or this thing and and, uh, give us your give us a couple hundred people from your version of central casting. I guess that money, if it's not in the United States, it seems to go a lot further. Yeah, but unnecessarily so. Like so many of the shots, I mean, you've been to Quebec City, I've been to Quebec City, I've been to St. John's, Newfoundland. There's no reason to even, like, what about Italy said Italy to you? You're inside a violin maker's studio. All you're seeing is dust motes in Italy coming through the window. There's no reason to go to Italy. What about the stuff with the monastery? The, that's what's... That monastery could have been, again, anywhere in Quebec, the province of Quebec, but certainly Quebec City. There's lots of monasteries and, monasteries and uh, convents that are hundreds of years old. Uh, there's a shot that looks like Whistler, you're looking out that sort of graded window of the monastery and you see the mountains of, uh, yeah. of Austria. Yeah. I thought for a second that that was Whistler. It looked like BC to me. There's just, I, there's no reason to go to those places unless you exploit those places to me in a richer way. I mean, we've seen Montreal play Brooklyn in the movie Brooklyn. And I had no beef with that. Like, there's ways to replicate it when it's similar types of architecture and landscapes. And I just felt like a $15 million budget was just blown on saying, let's fly to Italy. Let's go to Vienna. Let's go to China. Why? But it, but it adds, I think it adds that sort of value to it that um, that gives um, like producers and industry people a big heart on. About what so it's doing. a justification of $15 million yeah, when yeah. you could make it for three. Yeah, I think that's okay. probably what it is. Okay. But also, when you then when you, when it comes to award season, it's you know well you look at this production that just stayed in its own town and did all you know and and pretended it was somewhere else, or look at our production that globe trotted and spent all yeah. this money. Okay, it, it it is a superficial standard. Um, it's a superficial sure. way to dress it up and yeah. say like look at look at all the effort that went into it. But right. I think that's I think that's what it is basically. There's just nothing very distinct about it. I mean, if you're if you're shooting in Venice, we know what Venice, Italy looks like. If you're shooting in Paris, we know what Paris looks like. We don't know where Gramona, Italy is. We don't know what that looks like. I even uh, thought when they went to um, the, the Chinese location, mm-hmm. and I don't think I don't think they mention where it is. Uh, but I, I know it's in the credits. It says there's a there's a Shanghai unit. Right. So I, yeah, it's a it's a major city. I can I can imagine that there is a um, a film production industry sure. there. Yeah, right? but um, it looked also like completely generic. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That budget just seems so inflated and just silly. Um, okay, if you haven't seen the Red Violin, I'll, uh, let's let's give you a little bit of a plot rundown, <laughs> um, and and I think after that point, um, you can expect that we're just gonna talk without like holding back any plot details we're just gonna so this is your spoiler warning coming up fair fair so the movie starts in italy si certo where we meet this violin maker uh with the name biscotti (laughs) Um, he's a so he's 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 a violin craftsman he has a sick wife who i think 
I think he introduces her as sick wife because the moment you see her, you know she's gonna die. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm maybe we're being mean too um, too early in this plot summary. Okay, Italy, violin uh, violin maker makes um, a violin. His wife dies during childbirth. Is that the way? Is that way? That, is that how I say it? Uh, do you need to qualify that he makes a perfect violin? If you think I should, okay. I think that that's the thing that is the string, mm-hmm. pun intended, I guess, that links all of the narratives and all five of those stupid tarot cards is that it's a perfect violin. Okay. So is there a price to pay for perfection? Okay. So it's a, it's a perfect violin okay not just that it's old and that's not what makes it valuable or not that it was the italian equivalent of a stradivarius it's that it's a perfect violin right okay point taken that's i think that is uh, essential to our understanding of why we should give a shit <laughs> so um from the uh from the violin maker in italy it gets passed to an orphanage in austria or is it uh, a monastery orphanage, something of that sort? Yeah. Okay. Um, where uh, where a little boy, a little project, a little prodigy, <laughs> gets his hands on it, and then tragedy strikes, and it falls into the hands of gypsy grave robbers. Oh, and then it goes to England, where mm-hmm. um, how would you describe this character, Pope, played by Jason Fleming? Uh, he's he's a a rich Lord, Lord of the Manor, who is a violin virtuoso. Okay, a virtuoso. That's a good word. With a uh, with with a hearty sexual appetite. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he possesses it for a while, and then it goes to China, mm-hmm. um, and then from China it ends up in Montreal on the auction block, where we meet um, a, a bunch of characters, sort of in the present day all who have an interest in acquiring this violin. And um, it, it, and the characters know it as the red violin, this perfect specimen of a violin. And, and uh, is there supposed to be tension about who will get it? Because... Yes. Well, there's supposed to be tension. I think so. Okay. Did you give a shit who got this violin? No, and I, I was trying to give a shit about... The imposter violin that uh, Sam Jackson was sourcing from London. It was the closest copy to this red violin. And then Don McKellar was helping him make the dummy one look more authentic. I didn't even know what their transactions were all about. I just couldn't follow the plot on that yeah. one. For me, what's happening in the present day um, reflects like these, uh, these, these uh, flashbacks. In that, I, I didn't like any of the characters. I didn't care if they got this violin or not. So right. for me, that is like a big problem in in this two and a half hour movie, where yeah. I don't care about the characters. Uh, I don't un- I don't I don't care about the motivations. Uh, I don't care about their backgrounds. I don't like them. Um, so does the movie want me to give a shit about the history of the violin, this inanimate object? Which okay, it's a perfect violin. But I should I should give a I should give I should care that it has um, that it's endured time 
and and handling by many people is is that kind of the thrust of this movie <laughs> this violin has been assigned so much gravity and personality in quotes that the tarot cards that the Italian servant flips over for the first character that we meet, which is the pregnant wife who dies in childbirth. She's the wife of the violin maker. The tarot cards are for the violin. Oh my God. I just, I, that just didn't pay off for me at all. Cause if you think of the hangman, the moon, you will be seduced by none of it paid off. None of the tarot cards paid off for me name the tarot cards or how they related to the five places that the violin went. I don't know. I have no idea. Do you know? One was the devil. And who's the devil? The, the sexy British guy? Yep. Yeah, because uh. when he came on screen, she we went to the flashback where she flipped over the card and, and she said, you will meet the devil. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Except um, the problem with that is um, I don't think that character acts so devilish. Not um, at all. He's 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 a selfish asshole. Sure, and then, but he's a virtuoso. By the sure. nature of being a virtuoso, you're better than everybody else. You're allowed yeah. to have ego. That's just and the then, way it plays out. Yeah. And then, of course, the way that that character's story wraps up, um, oh. his demise. He he dies of a broken heart, or well, he commits he suicide. Commits suicide. But because he has a broken heart, that's not exactly um, how I pictured the devil would be undone. <laughs> No, like, isn't he supposed to seduce and manipulate and, and deceive? That's what devils do. They don't just have sex with, you know, ladies. Yeah. Big deal. It's called a philanderer, not a devil. Okay, I have a question about the gypsies. Yes. The gypsy grave robbers. Did you notice that when we are watching the violin go through the different hands of gypsies, they put the camera on a gimbal? Yeah, so you could what? you could see the perspective of the violin. What? And all the all the faces that are uh, being oh, pressed against it. I hated that. Mm -hmm. You know, it really works when it's Harvey Keitel drunk in Mean Streets. It did not work in this movie at all for me. <laughs> it was just inexplicable. That's one of those things. Like it's a style thing that just had no place. It, it I just didn't get it. There's there's so many things in this movie that don't have a place in it. And um, if I could uh, return to a, like a to go to a major section of the movie, mm -hmm. the China section, mm -hmm. because uh, I it's not that I it's not that I think people of different cultures can't tell a story of of, of, of that culture or, or this culture. Right. Like, like you know, I'm I'm not saying like you have to be of a certain culture to tell that story. Right. Okay. But um, Don McKellar, the scriptwriter. Right. Um, Co-opting the uh, Chinese history uh, and and the turbulent year, turbulent years of the Cultural Revolution, right? He does not add anything to that conversation <laughs> by putting the story there, and it, it just it doesn't feel like he has anything to say or contribute right. about China's history, right? But he uses it for this movie, mm -hmm. um, and I and like I said before about how it's kind of constructed are these are these uh, things to manipulate critics. Right. I think in the 90s, Chinese movies were really popular. Absolutely. And that's why it's in here, because because China. Yeah. So let's put that in here. It looks more worldly. Sure. Um, but I don't think that's... I don't. Think... We had to go somewhere non-European. Sure. I guess. Okay. Right? So we had, to pick, to. we had to pick some... Where would you pick? 
That seems like the right mm-hmm. choice. It doesn't it doesn't make it interesting. No. But I'm saying logically, I think what other non Western place would you choose that was hot in the nineties? But why does it have to go to a non Western place? Because you have to understand that music transcends. It's not just about a four four beat. It's not just about you know <laughs> the patriarchal Eurocentric Western classical music man. It's about it's about the world. It touches music oh. touches the world. Uh, okay, but I guess I guess if you're a musician, if you're an artist, you should you should play in the field that that is you that that you right. Know, that says something about you. I don't think Don McKellar is saying anything about his Chinese history. I don't think he's saying anything about his uh, his Italian or or uh, German background. Yeah. Right. I don't think he's saying anything yeah. about what it was like to be an orphan. No. You know? So these are all these are all things that are so superficial about this movie. But it but on it just makes it look like it it has all this, it has this grand scope. It has something to say about all these things. It right. has nothing to say about any it of that. It has nothing to say about yeah. those things. And and if and if this is a movie where where viewers, you and I were supposed to are we supposed to identify with the violin? Are we supposed to identify because <laughs> we because we start off with um well, we don't really start there, but we very very quickly we go to the auction house mm-hmm. and it's this room full of rich people yeah. who want to pay over a million dollars for a violin. Yes. So is that is that something that we're supposed to identify with? I certainly yeah. don't. I don't either. I don't understand. I don't why. pay more than a quarter of a million dollars for my musical instruments. I don't know about you. Well, yeah, it's good to it's good to have like a upper ceiling. I gotta yeah. have a ceiling. <laughs> oh, and because we're going back to the auction house, there is a character that I don't even know who he is. His name is Nicholas Osberg, and he's the wormy guy. Is the wormy guy from the monastery? Because he doesn't speak Austrian. Or speak English with a German accent. Very wormy, very bookish, wearing a bow tie and said his name is Nicholas Osberg. He's Who guy is who's he? in the cab. He's like, if yeah. I'm late, I'm gonna miss my chance to buy this thing and you're gonna You're gonna get castrated? I think Is that he's... how you negotiate with the cab driver in Montreal? <laughs> I'm doing something radically wrong. I think he was uh, like a dis- uh, wasn't he a descendant of uh, the oh, English no. guy? What? Well, no. just the way his face looked. Uh, no, because he looked, he looked like a pasty English person. Yeah, I just thought he looked like a wormy American guy. Looked look, look like the. Uh, no, I think he was English. The bookkeeper from The Untouchables. He just looked wormy. Well, we wormy. know. We know. We know. Sandra O oh was the Chinese representative. Right. Yes. We know. Um, the phone call was the brothers in the monastery in right. Austria. So someone was on the phone with those guys. Yeah. And the gypsies aren't represented. No. So it isn't like the five stories are coming together at the auction house. Not really. So that each one is represented. If you're trying to do some sort of symmetrical five tarot cards, five owners, five people that would come, that doesn't happen. No, it's not that. uh, I don't need it totally tidy, but it just, if you're going to have some conventions, I think it needs to be predictable and... complete that circle or or don't do it. Yeah, right. Well, there's no one representing Italy. There's no one representing the violin maker. That's right. Yeah. 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 And and I have I have problems with like how there's there's gaps in that chronology of the violin too. Like how oh, does it yeah. there, there's big gaps of how it gets from one hand to, an, yeah. to another. Can hand. I mention that the brothers when <laughs> when young Caspar dies, the the young boy prodigy who was an orphan adopted by a French music teacher, when he dies, the uh, 
the brothers say, you've put so much time and energy into him, and thank you so much, and we buried the violin with him. I'm like, am I wrong that it was three weeks? Because he's talking to his wife, and like, we have this audition for the, you know, the prince or the count of Austria or whatever, or Prussia, in three weeks. So he introduces this fake metronome to get the kid ready for this audition. It's three weeks. That's what that timeline suggested to me. But that can't be right. And also in the... And he doesn't age, so I don't know. Maybe it was three weeks. In the montage where we are introduced to the monastery, Mm -hmm. that violin has already gone through like a dozen hands. Yeah. So, but this time is made a connection with this kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, okay, so maybe in the 1700s or wherever that was, uh, maybe they didn't quite value... Musical instruments the same way? (laughs) Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah, I don't think they would have buried it. My brother was a Catholic brother Mm. who took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. I'm going to tell you that these monks living in a monastery in 18th century Austria would never bury a musical instrument with a dead child. Yeah. Their means are very modest. The fact that they even had like what seemed to be a full orchestra was shocking. Mm. There's no way that they would bury that instrument with a dead kid. Another point that I just rolled my eyes. Um, the Shanghai story again. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we witnessed this guy who used to be a music teacher, yeah. and he's shamed in front of the town because, uh, because yep. he's teaching Western musical traditions. Yeah. Okay, so the, char- to the, the character we're following, she's a member of, um, of, of the party, of the Communist Party. Right. But she's been hiding a violin the red violin so she takes it to him she takes it to his home after he's been um like denounced denounced in front of the village yep. and he he was forced to burn his violin yeah she brings him a violin un, unwraps it puts it on the table and says it's a violin <laughs> oh <laughs> just so much wrong with that segment and i don't know if you saw all the furtive glances at the rally that's happening um the rally that's talking about western music and and letting the music teacher off the hook but everyone's sort of looking sideways at each other like something portentous is going to happen what nothing nothing very exciting happens no no but everyone's looking at each other over the through the on the corners of their eyes like Uh something's happening and then nothing happens Um, let's cut to the, like, the final reveal. Okay. Oh, did you have, do you have points you wanted no, to, no. on the way? No. Okay, the final reveal. Yes. Okay. Samuel L. Sam Jackson. I'm sighing again, sorry. The DNA comes back. He's the father of the violin. <laughs> <laughs> he's, okay, so Sam Jackson, he's, he's he think he suspects, he knows where this violin came from. So he, he, he has it tested for a bunch of things. He has the varnish tested. It goes to a DNA lab. <laughs> it comes back. He opens the envelope, and he's speechless. Cut to a flashback. Now, the contents of that report, what we find out in the flashback, was that a surprise to you? Uh, even though I saw the movie 20 years ago, I think I had forgotten that. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so the reveal, the reveal is that the violin maker used his wife's blood to paint the violin. Does that make you give more of a shit? No. No, me neither. But I'm sure glad that the shot where he's in his studio uh, bloodletting her was done in Italy. 
<laughs> that just had Italy written all over it. Uh, but I just thought, if this is if this is what the big hook of the the big twist of the plot. But there's a double twist. Oh, the double twist. Right. What's that? Well, the one twist is that the red violin gets its color from the blood of the late wife. Okay. The second twist is that Sam Jackson switches out the London yeah. dummy for the real one, which means now the violin will go to his daughter. Right. So it will continue its journey into um, monotony. Which means that he would have had to... He bought the, he bought the copy? For two million fucking dollars? Are you kidding me? Well, it wouldn't have been two million dollars, but he had to order. He had to buy it from a private yeah. owner in in London. Okay, right. and I guess this, this private owner, when he reads in the paper about how the red violin was sold in Montreal, he will not say anything about. Oh, that's funny. I just I had just shipped my copy of that violin to Montreal last week. William, you should know the art world's just not that small. <laughs> um, uh, were you surprised by the? that the varnish on the violin was made from blood? I was, I wasn't, I, I didn't guess that that's what it was, but when when that reveal came, I was just kind of um, not really moved by it. Right. Um, again, it just didn't seem to make that much of a difference yeah. in terms of my appreciation of this object. Right. But then I'm also, I was also puzzled that Samuel Jackson's character also seems not really affected by that information because because that flashback that comes immediately mm-hmm. after is for the benefit of the audience. Right. Samuel Jackson doesn't see the flashback, so so <laughs> right. he would have gotten a report that said it's the 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 paint is made from blood. Right. But he doesn't like there wouldn't be a DNA sample of uh, of Biscotti's wife or Biscotti, right. so he doesn't know whose blood it is. Right. So what information would he take from that? Would he, would he say, would he conclude like, oh my God, the violin maker was a vampire <laughs> or a cannibal? Or like, there's just nothing he does with that information. Right. He doesn't share it with anyone. He doesn't freak out and say like, well, then I definitely don't want this. You don't see him at the library in Montreal looking up the violin maker in his life. Or maybe he already, know, maybe he already has that information. Well, well, I guess, but but he doesn't know his DNA, right? Like, there's no way to there's no way to match okay, that. Gotcha. The lab would say it was made of blood, right? But whose blood? They could have said blood from the well, 1600s, right? Yeah. Again, it doesn't mean right. that it's the violin maker's blood. So it doesn't like it doesn't it just doesn't have any weight to it that information, other than like ooh, it's kind of gruesome, but it doesn't change his desire to have that instrument. And he's going to give it to his daughter. Right. right? So, yeah. I mean, a, a twist might have been if, like, he's like, well, oh, that's how you get the perfect red stain on, on musical instruments. I'm going to start a business where I mix blood with paint. Right. <laughs> or it produces, somehow it contributes to, uh, you know, the resonance of the sound. of Because it's a perfect violin. That's what they say. Yeah. yeah I don't but know. again, it's just, yeah, the, it's just information about an object that I, I don't care about. Mm-hmm. It's a reveal that I that didn't affect me. So. Agreed. Do you want me to say two things I thought were positive about, about this movie? Are they the shots that you... Um, yeah. I thought we could just, um, again, recap the segments of, sure. of the plot, the right. different time segments and, and locations, Absolutely. and just see if anything resonated, resonated gotcha. with you. Sure. 
Yeah, see if anything was memorable about those segments. Sure. So it starts in Italy. Anything you remember from Italy? Uh, just that there's no reason for it to be shot in Italy. But I've already said yeah. that more than once. Vienna. Anything interesting about the Vienna sequence? That it looked like Whistler. Okay. Oh, and I also thought the kid fainting away was a kind of a comical death. Like, Not to be cruel, but yeah. uh, he just sort of faints away. And it's... And the person who he is playing for, whether that's the Count of Prussia or whatever his title is, is like Gary Oldman's vampire from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Did you notice his nails and his sort of profile? He looked like He's, Gary Oldman. Yeah, it was pretty ghoulish. Yeah. And, and actually, um, well, it's, that's a point I want to come back to. Um, but the thing that I remembered from the Vienna sequence is how overdone the costumes were. It looked like... It looked like that painting of the blue boy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And everyone is dressed up like that. And I just didn't know, like, is, is this movie trying too hard in its art direction and costuming to, right. to, to tell you that it's from this era? Or is it ironic and comical? Is it, is it exaggerated? I, I just didn't know really where it fell. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, because it's, what's nice about, uh, for example, the... Jane Austen adaptation that starred Keira Knightley, the costumes were period appropriate, but also kind of grubby. People didn't, ha everything wasn't pristine and perfect. And you have to remember there were no washing machines. Uh, so things have to look a little careworn. So you're right. The fact that they looked like portraits is, it takes you out of the movie. They should not be that perfect and clean. Yeah. 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 I, I, another thing about the Vienna sequences. Uh, if someone gave you cheese, would you play better? I think that's the suggestion. Mr. Poussin says, if you keep playing, you will get cheese. <laughs> so it's like a harbor seal working for kippers, I guess. Uh. Okay, so then after Vienna, there's... There's a short bit with the gypsies. Um, oh, the gypsy girl <laughs> looks like a valley girl meets Stevie Nicks. She <laughs> is so 1990s that, it, again, it just takes you right out of the movie. Her casting is just, it's terrible. I was a bit puzzled. Uh, this is the part also where we're introduced to the violin virtuoso, right. Pope, yep. um, who... Who um, approaches these gypsies who are on his estate? Right. And and the, the gypsies say like, oh well, you know, sort of, we're going to be gone by nightfall. Uh, and he says like, no, we can come to an agreement. And then we we cut to the next scene. So apparently the agreement was you could stay the night if you give me that violin. He also invited them to the concert. Oh so right, concert. He's takes. pretty generous. Wow. Okay. So the, so the gypsies, the grave robbing grave robbing gypsies. Yeah. Um, they they gave up a violin for some concert ticks. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Not the so not the best bargaining powers among, <laughs> among gypsies. Agreed. Yeah. Um, the Oxford sequence. Again, how do you know it's Oxford? I think someone has to tell you it's Oxford. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I find that very frustrating. So, you were talking about things looking uh, kind of painterly or like a portrait. There is a scene where. Uh, Lord Pope is in the bathtub reading a letter from Victoria 
and it's staged exactly like the famous painting of the death of Marat. So it's exactly staged like that. So I don't know. That's kind of interesting. I'm not going to criticize that. I, I liked it. I liked seeing that because someone took a lot of time to compose a shot that looked like a famous painting. Okay. I appreciate that. Was it done in, a, in such a way that you immediately knew immediately. what it was? Okay. So the lighting, the kind of the color scheme and... The way he's holding the letter. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm, I mean, that's... I haven't put them side by side But it was enough shots, to, to yeah. signal to you that that's what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. I believe so. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the perverse thing that happens in Oxford is Pope is naked on his bed with his violin between his legs and yeah. the neck of the violin is being stroked yeah. uh, by him. Uh, it's a little weird. Take those two shots that you've described, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's for me, it is just uh, a bit inconsistent. It's hard to really peg what the director is going for. Mm-hmm. Is it is it like this? Uh, he, he's he's going for this this mood of like uh, lush Renaissance paintings and, right, right. and some and classical compositions, or is he staging the cover of a Harlequin romance novel? It, yeah, it's not Peter Greenaway, right? Oh, it's far from Peter. Greenaway. Right. So who's creating yeah. a canvas? Yeah, in a very painterly way. It just seems it, it just seems a bit. Um, you know, I I I hope it's not insulting to say schizophrenic, but. You know, it just seems like they're trying a couple of different things right. uh, in, in terms of how they're putting these scenes together, the compositions and, and all that. Um, I did kind of appreciate the the sequence in Oxford um, after Victoria's left, mm-hmm. and they're corresponding by letter. And then he has, so so the actors are reading the letters, and then it starts to overlap so that it sounds like a live conversation. Right. Interesting. Sure. An interesting way to do this do sure. the scene. Except that, you know, there there's a great deal of time between their conversation. Uh, and and then when Victoria says, I haven't received your letters for a week and now I know what it's like to be without you, I have to come back. Um, that just that's that's that rang kind of false for me because yeah. um, like, how long would it have taken for letters to go between England and, and Russia in the 18th or 19th century? Um, but she was missing letters for a week. So they would so they would have had to have been in, like, such regular co- correspondence and frequent correspondence that... Right. I mean, I don't know the logistics. I don't know how, how the, you know, the reality of, of, of the mail service at that time. But just it just rang false for me. So. Yeah, it was, uh, I haven't heard from you in a month would have been maybe more appropriate. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then does it take you a month to get from Russia to England at that time in the uh, uh, world's history? Yeah. Yeah, just like the overland travel would have been significant. So, yeah. yeah. Um, what's after that? The China sequence. The other thing about the China sequence is uh, that... That very generic-looking street scene, right? Uh, but they push into a pawn shop that has clearly in English "buy and sell" because we need that. Yeah, because you you wouldn't know it, and I guess in in nineteen fifties-ish, yeah, China. I, you know, I don't doubt that Shanghai was uh, a hub with foreigners and all that too. Sure. But 
it just it seemed odd to me that uh, the, the English was so prominent on the on that storefront. Right. You know, it might have. It should have also said like you know we buy gold. Right. Um, and then finally, we get to the Montreal sequence. How do we know um, it's Montreal? Oh well, of the of the uh, varied locations that the film visits, mm-hmm. it looks the most bland. <laughs> so because it's flat, it looks like uh, I mean shot flat, not flat like a Saskatchewan prairie. It just has a. It just seemed visually less interesting. You this. couldn't do one, and I'm going to Samuel Jackson this. One motherfucking establishing shot that is Montreal, that we all understand to be Montreal. A shot of Mount Royal, a shot of the Oratory, a shot of something that says we're in Montreal. Well, there's, there's people with French names that speak English, so that's wow. very Montreal. It's amazing. So astute. <laughs> like, like, not even a second unit shot. Why? I guess they just couldn't think of something interesting, visually interesting. In Montreal. Montreal, yeah, yeah. Sure. it's a very dull city. <laughs> uh, the one shot I did like in Montreal that, of course, could have happened on a soundstage in Hollywood was, though it's a little overblown, I just, I'm just i trying to find positive things to say, uh, it's the shot of Sam Jackson, but it's through the little aperture in the violin, so it has a little sort of swirly shape and we are looking at sam jackson through this swirly shape kind of like a keyhole yeah that is a nice composition it's a nice shot yeah but again it, it reminds me of uh it reinforces for me that the the movie is just kind of all over the place in terms yes. of its style that's right and and you know uh, the the director francois girard took home awards for his direction what is it about his handling of this material that that has any sort of um, anything distinct about it that says like you know you're in this is this is a craftsperson an artist who has a unique vision it just seems like it's kind of hodgepodge and agreed yeah so I'm yeah I just um, the other thing too is is there's there's moments uh, you were talking about the the death of the little kid. <laughs> there's moments that I can't tell if it's being played for laughs. I don't know if it's comedy or ironic or if it's just not quite hitting the right dramatic mark. Um, Can you give me an example? Well, you know when when uh, uh, that kid dies. Yes. And we're at the funeral. When his uh, when his caretaker or, or adopted. Uh, father or whoever he is Monsieur Poussin when he's told the violin was buried with the boy he just kind of gives a look like that I couldn't tell if he was like thinking like yeah, that's appropriate or like oh shit that was my last chance to like get some money out of that kid like it's just right. it's just very neutral it's just there's not enough on either side to tell you what the character is feeling yeah agreed all right um, oh, so uh, so Francois Girard was not. Uh, so I said he he took the award for at the Genies for Best Director. Um, also nominated for direction that same year was Don McKellar. What for uh, for Last Night, which came out that same year. Right. Um, so, so Don McKellar, he's uh, you know multi talented Canadian uh, writer, producer, director, actor. Yeah, um, so much so that uh, twice this summer, I saw uh, Don McKellar 
<laughs> production. I saw The Drowsy Chaperone at uh, Malcolm Bowl in Stanley Park for Theater Under the Stars. I was so charmed by it the first time that I went back and saw it again. It was uh, written by uh, Don McKellar and, and a friend of his, and then the libretto and, and words and music were created by another couple. So four people collaborated on this, and it won Tony's on Broadway. I had never heard of it until this summer, but it was beyond charming. I loved it. I would go see it again if it was still playing. Wow. It was very fun. The Drowsy Chaperone. Drowsy Chaperone. It's very meta, but he does it very well. Oh. So he... um, So how recently was that on I would say in the last 10 years. Oh, I don't have the exact year, but I think in the last decade. All right. And they haven't made a movie adaptation of it yet? I No, they haven't. I don't know how they would. I guess they could. They could. They could. I'm sure, sure. they will. Yeah. Um, okay, well. So that is, after seeing Don McKellar's work for the last 23 years, I would have to say that is the best Don McKellar work and one of the only ones I've liked, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Okay. Um... Don McKellar, is he... You said he had a Tony, so is he... He's not yet an EGOT winner. No. No, I guess he's not. Oh my god, can you imagine? (laughs) I mean, I guess it could happen. That's an exclusive club, EGOT. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. um, So your other thoughts... Um, do you want to know how much this film made? Oh, I do. Okay. <laughs> how do you think it did? Oh, you said it was, uh, the budget was $15 million. Uh, Yeah. It was, um, so it was a telefilm movie, I think. And did it get distribution in the States? It through, did. It did. Through New know. Line or somewhere I like think that? so. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to guess... 40 million. <laughs> okay, no. <laughs> too much? Did, too high? Way too high. Okay, all right. But I mean, it's all relative because of the way we distribute movies and right. Canadian popularity in other countries. It made 10 million US in the US and 3.3 million in Canada. Oh, okay. So it really, it struck a nerve in the US. Critics liked it. It won Academy Awards and uh, it made a lot more money there than it did here. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's the relative uh, market populations and stuff right. like that. But um, I guess it was the art house hit that year. I guess. So, huh. ah. so still, together, still doesn't make the $15 million budget, right? <laughs> Let's just remember that while we're talking about $13.3 million altogether is still not $15 million. Oh, but all, all Canadian movies are a write-off for, right. for somebody. Right. right. Um, maybe including for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that was our thoughts on The Red Violin. Um, and maybe we're in the minority. Or maybe it's just a movie no one cares about anymore. And doesn't matter. But uh, thanks for listening. And um, if you, uh, like I said, share your comments with us uh, on the website or by email. And uh, thanks, Chris, for joining me to talk about The Red Violin. Hope we can uh, catch another Canadian movie soon. Yeah, thanks for making me watch this movie for the second time. I really had a 
great time watching it again. Thank you for having me as a you, guest. You are welcome. <laughs> if you want to catch up with our other episodes, uh, check out our website, filmedincanada.net. You can also uh, find our episodes on the iTunes store. Email your comments to filmedincanada at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and hope you will listen again. 